Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are my colleagues at Investors Chronicle, Deputy Personal Finance Editor Kate Bailey and Personal Finance Writer Emma Ajimang, and James Baxter, Partner at Tideway Wealth. If you're an income investor, an area you may well have turned to for a regular and reliable income is investment trusts. And research recently published by the Association of Investment Companies, or AIC for short, seems to confirm just how reliable they are. Kate, what specifically does this AIC research on investment trust income look at? Um, So this is looking at the investment trusts which have increased their dividends for 20 years or more. Okay, and um, on this list, who's at the top? Um, so at the top, we've got City of London, Investment Trust, Bankers and Alliance Trust. And all three of those have increased their dividends for 50 uh, consecutive years. So that's obviously quite impressive. It is indeed. So why are investment trusts, like the ones you mentioned, um, why can they keep raising their dividends? I mean, we've been through some rather lean times for dividends, let's say, on a number of occasions over the last 50 years. Yeah. Um, well, they have this benefit over open-ended funds in that they can hold back 15% of revenue um, each year and put that into a reserve and then dip into that if necessary um, in order to keep paying sustained or increased dividends year on year. Okay, that's interesting. And um, what would be examples of um, investment trusts which have um, had to use their revenue reserves? Um, well, City of London is one. Um, Manager Joe Curtis said that he's done that, in fact, in seven years out of the 25 that he has managed the trust. Okay, and has it done that recently? Well, not in 2016, which was actually a pretty good year for dividends, um, mainly just due to devaluation of sterling, which meant that, in fact, you know, he had an increased income coming in, uh, so didn't need to dip into the the fund. Okay, I mean, that sounds all very promising, but uh, what about going forward? What's the outlook for dividends? Well, it's it's uncertain. The general consensus seems to be that it's a little more muted than in previous years. And that's partly just because dividends have kind of caught up um, after lagging the recovery of corporate earnings in after the recession. Um, but then we don't know what will happen to the pound. If it does weaken further, then that will be a boost for dividends. So it's kind of uncertain, but likely to be less strong than in the past. Alex Crick, manager of Bankers Investment Trust, um, said he anticipates global growth in dividends to be between 3 and 5%. But yeah, there, there is kind of not much consensus on that. Okay. Now, James, the AIC dividend heroes list flags for trusts which are good at consistently raising their dividends. Do you think it's more important that a fund grows its income rather than offers the highest income at a given time? Absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, what you're really looking for with uh, the better income funds is those funds that are investing in companies which are able to keep increasing their dividends. In fact, we actually think it's quite high risk to just simply go out there and look for the highest yielding fund because quite often what that means is that that yield is not sustainable and it's coming out of reserves or it's um, you know it's from companies who won't be able to sustain their dividends so I think for us almost the number one thing that we look for when we're trying to pick income funds is those funds where they're buying into companies that are both paying a nice income now, but have got a plan and a a stable business plan that shows that they can increase those dividends. With that in mind then, do you actually think the ability of investment trusts to hold back revenues in a reserve to smooth out lean years is a a good thing then? 
I think it depends how you're using the the uh, investment in your overall planning. I mean, if it, if if you're simply living off that particular income stream, that particular set of dividends, then yes, it's nice to know that you're not going to get a sudden surprise when one year the income is going to be lower. But if you're going to have a portfolio of investments that are going to generate the income, then I think it gets uh, less important. And in fact, you know, over time you would expect that to be a kind of nil-sum gain. So in some years, they're going to use the reserves. In other years, they're going to have a nice dividend. They're going to have to hold back some of that dividend in order to recreate those reserves. So I think if you're comparing these investment strategies in in closed-ended funds versus the same strategies in open-ended funds, over time, it should even out. Turning to open-ended funds, there's been a change to the requirements they've had to meet to be ranked by the Investment Association in its UK equity income sector. Kate, what is this change? Um, yeah, the, the yield requirement has, has been lowered so that funds have to yield now only 100% um, over the FTSE all shares yield over a three-year rolling period as opposed to 110%, which was the previous requirement. Okay, um, maybe that seems a bit odd because you know, surely you want a higher income. So why did the Investment Association change this? Uh, well, there's been a lot of controversy um, in the past kind of couple of years. A lot of funds have been basically exiled from the sector for failing to meet that yield. And obviously, bear in mind, we've been um, in pretty low yield times, low rates, having an impact on that. So there, there was kind of a feeling that too many funds were being kicked out, which are actually good income funds. And also that this requirement is kind of forcing funds to take quite high risks in order to generate a high yield um, instead of prioritising kind of sustainable long term dividends. And growing the income as we've just been discussing exactly yeah okay so what examples of um, funds perhaps good funds which have been kicked out of the uk equity income sector um so some examples would be rathbone income um Invesco perpetual high income schroeder income um, and henderson uk income and growth okay so yes yeah, some respectable funds there um is there anything else that could still cause a fund to be ejected from the uk equity income sector yeah, um, failure to achieve 90% of the FTSE All Shares yield in any one year period would still result in a fund being removed. So there is, you know, obviously still an income requirement there. Which is perhaps fair, is enough, fair enough for an income sector. Um, now, what else has the Investment Association introduced? Um, well, it's, it's also lowered the yield hurdle on the global equity income sector to bring the two in line. Okay. James, do you think lowering the yield hurdle funds have to meet to be included in the Investment Association UK equity income sector from 110% to 100% is a good move? I think this is a a yes and no um, answer, as is often the case. So it's never quite as black and white as you think. Definitely, we would agree with uh, the, the ability to have in there uh, funds that are that are you know investing more broadly than the index, so it allows managers to basically um, invest away from the index, which is a good thing. I mean, I think one of the criticisms of the equity income sector, and perhaps lost on many investors who you you know we quite often see people who are doing this sort of thing themselves, and they end up with quite a lot of funds, and there's an enormous am- amount of overlap in those funds because of a kind of herding process that goes on. If you're challenged to generate 110% of the index income, then there's only so many stocks that will enable you to do that. And so, you know, you, there's a lot of pressure on managers to own the same stocks. So you find when you start to drill into these funds that there is a, a large amount of herding going on. So 
So reducing that limit hopefully will um, allow managers to be a little bit freer in how they invest and create a, a better sort of choice in how you, you go about it. And certainly from our, our perspective, we we like to invest in income funds that are not investing in those herded stocks. We like to invest in other areas in the market. I think the no is kind of, you know, well, if, if, you, if you just make it 100% of the index, then there's so many more managers that can come into the sector on that criteria. And then how do investors choose? And ultimately, you know, we all know that if you have a lot of funds in an index like this, ultimately, it's a nil sum game, and you may as well buy the index uh, and save your fees. <laughs> okay. Now, what about setting a hurdle for the global equity income sector? Do you think that's a good idea? I think, yeah, I think that, uh, again, it comes down to is helping investors to try and uh, differentiate from funds and those that are focused on generating the income uh, and, and away from just picking funds that are just simply based on the yield. So I think it, it is a good idea on the whole. Okay. Now, what do you look for when you're selecting an equity income fund? Well, we, you know, we we do a lot of um, fundamental research on the underlying portfolio. So we, we're trying to, I mean, obviously, we're not trying to second guess what the managers are doing, because because we're not running that fund, the managers running that fund. But as advisors who are selecting it, we're really looking to see that the managers got some process in place for selecting companies. And ideally, as I said before, we're, we're trying to find companies that are investing outside of the the main index and um you know doing something a little bit different so that when we blend those funds together in a portfolio we're actually um you know getting some diversification so uh, I, I can name the funds that we're using if you're interested yeah yeah so we've got three funds in our income portfolio at the moment um in our equity well in the equity income portion of our portfolio we're using um uh, standard life european income mm-hmm. we're using um an artemis global income fund and we're using a, a unicorn smaller companies uh income fund. unicorn uk income yes unicorn yeah. uk income mm. yes which um hasn't had the best of returns compared to some of the international funds because of you know it is a very uk focused company it probably suffered a little bit in the whole brexit fallout but its long-term track record and its recent track record um, justify why we're a, where we own that fund. Mm, um, presumably, with international funds rather than the great stock section, it was an in, it was a, a currency boost. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. you know, so, the, uh, of those, <laughs> of, course, yeah. of those yeah. three funds, uh, you know, this year Artemis is going to knock the lights out. But that's one year. We're doing this for the long term, and what we hope we've got there with is three funds that are broadly all doing quite different things. Yeah, yeah, and uh, of course, currency can turn against you too. Indeed, Indeed, absolutely. So you have to watch out for the currency. And um, it was interesting in an article that you looked at with, with these articles in your paper, the one um, talks about bankers, in fact. And, mm. um, no, Kate, was, thanks, Kate's article. Yeah. Indeed. So yeah. what's interesting there is, you know, what the managers said about his strategy and the international and how the currency mm. might help him. And, mm. you know, my point would be that I think that that sort of asset allocation strategy in terms of currency exposure uh, and the type of companies he's investing in is going to be much, much more important to the future returns than that ability to retain the the dividends and pay out of reserves. You know, those sorts of things are the ability to pay out of reserves. It's a nice thing to have for investment trusts. But honestly, the, you know, the, the outlook for bankers and the future return from bankers is going to come down much more to its stock selection and its currency exposure than it is down to its ability to dip into its reserves. Yeah. So back to the issue of sustainability. Indeed. Yeah. On that note, when you're looking at uh, 
trusts or funds uh, that uh, hopefully give you some equity income. What don't you like to see? What makes you turn away? I think that uh, the herd approach. So, you know, if we start to see the same old names uh, cropping up in the funds, um, you know, we all, I think that the particularly the FTSE 100 is a dangerous space because you've got a lot of concentration of dividends from a very small number of company. And if we just are putting in funds and actually when we cut across the portfolios, we just see that we're just doubling up. Uh, we're not going to put more managers in just to double up on the same equity holdings. So it, it is, it's, it's this business of trying to find you know, companies or a manager who's selecting companies that have got a really good business plan to increase that dividend in years to come and then trying to find a, a diversification of those strategies and processes across the various equity sectors that we can get involved in, whether that's global, small cap, mid cap or a large cap. Okay, thank you, James. And you can see the full list of AIC dividend heroes in Kate's article in this week's Investors Chronicle on the website. With the end of a tax year drawing close, hopefully you are looking to make use of certain tax allowances such as your ISA, if you haven't already, because if you don't use them, you'll lose them. That said, the new tax year normally brings with it a new set of similar entitlements, and in some cases, like the ISA, this year, or next year, I should say, more generous one when it rises to 20000 a year. However, there's one allowance that will actually reduce come the new tax year. Emma, what is this? This is the last year, Eleonora, that you can use the 2013-14 pensions carry-forward allowance. And carry-forward allows you to use up any unused pensions allowance from the last three tax years to top up your pension contributions. And 2013-14 is the last year in scope because it was three years ago. And that year, the pensions allowance was £50,000. Um, and it's since fallen to £40,000. So this is basically the last year that you can use um, the 2013-14 more generous £50,000 pensions allowance. Okay, so if you don't use the 50,000 entitlement, you'll lose it forever. That's right. But are there any things you need to consider before throwing £50,000 into your pension, if you got it? (laughs) Yes, there are. Um, There are three main things you need to consider. You need to make sure that your pension contributions are not higher than your earnings, because otherwise you won't receive the tax relief on, on the contribution. And you also need to make sure that the current pension allowance, you use that first. Before this year's pension. Exactly. Yeah. So, so you have to put in 40000 for 2016-17. Exactly. And then you can start thinking about using it. Yes, that's yeah. right. So you, need, you always need to make sure that you start off with the current pension allowance before you can go back to the oldest allowance of three years ago. And as you say, that's £40,000. And the third thing you also need to make sure you don't go over is the pension lifetime allowance, which is currently £1 million. So you don't want to to be breaching that. As you mentioned, um, you actually can look back to the past three years. That could be quite a lot of money if you've mm. got to also use your current year. I mean, I, as I understand, if you used this year and the past three years, that would be 170000 That's right. Probably a lot of our listeners don't have 170000 mm. So do you have to use up all carry-forward years together? No, you don't. But there is a particular order that you need to do things in. Um, so as we've we've just discussed, you need to start with the current tax year. You need to use up your allowance for the current tax year. And then you go back to the oldest tax year in scope, which is 2013-14 in this case. And then once you've done that, if you've still got money to, more money to use up, you can go on to 
the, the next tax year and then the, the next tax year in scope. So, for example, this year you could make a contribution of £90,000 and that would include your 2016-17 allowance of 40000 plus the 2013-14 allowance of 50000 But you don't have to do that. You could also save up your your um, tax allowances for the future years and use them instead. Yeah, but obviously not the year that falls away. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Okay. James, do you think investors who can use a pensions carry forward allowance should do so? Uh, well, absolutely. I think that uh, it's a relatively complicated area. It sounds quite simple, and thank you for explaining it. But uh, it does get quite complicated quite quickly um, with the various rules that we have in terms of the lifetime allowance. The other thing that you have to watch out for these days is the tapering of the limit, which if you're earning more than 150000 starts to reduce your allowance this year. Now, that the, the carry forward can actually help there sometimes. So if you've had a nice year and you've earned a nice bonus and you've suddenly got earnings over 150,000 that means you know you eventually if you get over 200 you're you're limited to 10,000 but that's just for this year so if you've got those big allowances from previous years where you didn't earn over 150,000 then you can bring those forward and get all the tax relief so so for high earners it's going to be um, something definitely to worth you know to have a good look at I mean, I can honestly say that nobody has ever come up to me and said, oh, God, James, I wish I never put that money into pensions. Mm. So I think that we, you know, we all suffer from struggling to save enough each on a regular basis. So when you do find yourself in the fortunate position of having a windfall, whether it's, you know, a small inheritance that you've got or, um, you know, you've had a large bonus, uh, then it's a great opportunity. You might not miss it at the time that you do it. And, you, you know, it's still one of the few areas where we can invest in a pretty low-risk way and get, um, you know, 40% tax relief. It's worth mentioning as well, perhaps, mm-hmm. that horrible tax bracket, which is just over 100,000, mm-hmm. from 100,000 up to 120,000, where the effective rate of tax is 60% because you're using your, your nil rate band, mm-hmm. which gets taken away from you once you get over 100,000. So um, particularly if you find yourself earning you know, 140 or something like that, and, and and you don't actually need that extra income, the amount of net income you're going to give up to make these higher pension contributions is going to be quite small. Okay, that's a useful point. Now, turning, um, drilling down to the situations, um, Emma, what sort of investors could the carry forward allowances be useful for? Well, as James has just mentioned, it would be very good for anyone earning more than £150,000 um, who has who's subject to the tapered allowance because they can go back and, and mop up some of the unused pensions allowance from previous years, which can mm. which can help them contribute more overall. So that's that's one example. Um, it's also good for anybody who hasn't used up their allowance in previous years, but um, as Jane sort of touched on, has mm. suddenly had a change in circumstances. Maybe they've had inheritance or they've sold a property, something that they've got more money right mm. now and they want to top up yeah. their pensions. One area where it works particularly well, I think, is where you're, you know, you're getting quite close to the point where you're going to take your money back out. Mm. Um, so if you're, you know, in your mid fifties or, um, approaching the point where you've got access to the money, then you know it's it, it's brilliant because a you're not tying the money up for very long, and b when you get that tax free cash back from the pension fund, you get a lot more liquidity into your situation. So, you know, you, we often have situations where we'll help people sort of 
you know, they may have money in other things like ISAs, for example, that they can just use temporarily over a few years to make up those allowances. And then when the tax-free cash comes back, then they can build up their ISAs again. So, you know, it's about sort of sweating your assets overall um, as you approach retirement to try and get as close to that lifetime allowance as you can. Yeah, that's useful. Are there any other financial planning situations or scenarios that it could be particularly useful in? No, I think we've we've probably covered it. Uh, I think the other point I was going to mention is that you know, she made the point that you've got to have the, the net relevant earnings to justify the pension contribution. I mean, really, there's no value in doing pension contributions for the nil rate band. So you need to take £11,000 off your earnings before you look at that. And also, if you're going to be able to get 40% relief, of course, it's better than if you're going to get 25% relief. So some people will want to look at just slicing off the amount of income that they've got at 40% rather than necessarily funding 100% of their earnings because then the amount of relief overall you're going to get is going to lower. Okay. Now, you're saying that you know most people don't regret putting um, money into their pensions, but um, are there any type of people or situations where perhaps it wouldn't be appropriate to use the carry forward allowance? Well, clearly, if you if you if you can't if you can't get the tax break, you don't put money into pensions. Yeah. Is the, is the, is the mm. general guidance? I mean, um, apart from the stakeholder allowance, the three thousand six hundred, which I think still people still use, where they they don't have earnings. The whole drive for doing pension contributions is to get that tax relief on the contribution. So if you can't get that, then you may as well invest in an ISA, uh, where you've um, you know where you've got immediate access to the funds versus locking it up to age fifty five mm. or older if you're younger. Um, and then there are some people who, you know, um, pension contributions only work on net relevant earnings. So they're only based on, on, on real earnings as opposed to things like dividends. So there are people out there who are higher rate taxpayers with dividend income, particularly self-employed people who use a service company, for example. You know, they won't be able to make uh, necessarily mm-hmm. pension contributions, but they could invest in other tax efficient vehicles, of which there are a few things like VCTs and EIS. But, you know, big warning signal straight away, these are not the same sort of underlying investment structures. They're more expensive, they're less liquid, and they're not, you know, the sort of thing that you should be going to first and foremost to plan your retirement. You know, when you're trying to plan your retirement, you want, you know, secure assets Mm. and liquid assets that will deliver the income. And and some of these other tax-driven investments, they might work well for some people who are doing the pensions and want to do something else, but they probably are not good as a sort of alternative to a pension and certainly not your first port of and call. not your first port of yeah. call yes yeah. so I suppose the order priority should be something along the lines of pension and ISA yes I had a very good story yeah. of, a, of, a, of a, a doctor who was um, I won't ma- mention his name because he'd be embarrassed but uh, you know he, he, he met a financial advisor and he basically he's got his NHS pension which is great but that's mm. getting quite limited and cut back and he had quite a bit of cash on deposit and never done a lot of investing and the advisor kind of was driven by the tax breaks and went straight for the VCT EIS angle. Mm. And you think, yeah, well, yeah, that will give you tax relief. But it's like for somebody who's never invested before, it's a ve- it's like diving straight into the very <laughs> highest risk, yeah. most illiquid end of the market. And actually, you know, probably what he needed to do in the first instance was just buy some, you know, do some basic ISAs and yeah. buy some yeah. straightforward income, you know, funds. Yeah. Well, thank you, Emma and James. Some really helpful points there. That brings us to the end of today's podcast, so it just remains to thank Kate Bailey and Emma Ajimang, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer to Investors Chronicle, and James Baxter, partner at Tideway Wealth. 
You can read more on equity income investment trusts and funds and using your pensions carry forward allowance in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend.